Good morning. Let me give you a little bit of a, a teaser about what we're going to be talking about on Saturday morning, September 13th, between 8.30 and noon. If we were to try to pin down what is the Spirit's role relative to the Christian life, I think we might say, if you can picture intentions, which are ideas of what we'd like to do, and then actions would be the ability of us to do those things. Put a dotted line between these two things, intentions and actions. Kind of hard. Intentions don't always turn into actions. Sometimes we lack the power to do the things that we would want to do and to avoid the things we would not want to do. And it's the Spirit's job to connect intentions and actions. And that's what the Spirit does. Now, how he does it is critical. I would ask you, how does the Spirit work in our life to turn intention into action? I'm not going to ask for responses. What would you say? How does he do it? Hmm. My sense is the clearer we are about how the Spirit functions, the more likely we'll experience his power. There's a couple things that stand in the way of experiencing the Spirit. One are false notions. We get the idea that the main role of the Spirit is to convict us of sin. I don't believe that's the truth. And some of us, that's what we come up with. That's the Spirit's job, to say stop. And I don't believe that's accurate. And we might think other things, to give us subjective impressions or something like that. We have some false notions. Sometimes it's not false, but just fuzzy, far from clear. By coming to the seminar, what we'll do is do our best through discussion and presentation to remove the false notions and to clear up the fuzzy ones. And when you emerge clearer about how the Spirit turns intentions into actions, I think what you'll find, clarity is a big part of the process of seeing that occur. So I encourage you to come, and that's, that's what we'll try to do in the course of the morning. Talking about the good life comes from a the book of James. He asks a question, James 3.13. It's in your worship folder in the sheet that we have included. This is what the verse indicates. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That's why we get the idea of the good life. And the way the Bible describes the good life, it's deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And then in the ongoing, chapter, ongoing chapters, James highlights some of the things that enable us to live the good life. And what he gears down towards in the end of his letter, he focuses on prayer, which is what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. The next three weeks. I'm going to do my part this week. Mark Lordson's going to be up next week. J.C. Chambers is going to be up the week after that. And what you're going to find is a little bit of different focus going from the letter. We'll get a picture of how all this works. Actually, J.C.'s is more about seeking the lost. It's not as much about prayer, is it, Jay? It's about what does it mean to influence and find lost people. So Mark will do prayer, and then J.C. will finish us up doing that. Um, but that's what James does. He uh, brings us to the good life means that we, that we talk to God. Look what it says in James 5, 13 through 15. 
Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Talk to God when you're in trouble. Trouble talks about external difficulty and distress, things that you're experiencing that are not pleasant things to experience. When you find yourself in the place where you have things you don't want, want things you don't have, pray about that. Talks about, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Happiness is not a, it's about internal cheerfulness. Things are going pretty good. At that time, songs of praise. That's a time to pray. Is any one of you sick? It zeroes in on illness. And that's a time to pray as well. So talk to God when you run into trouble. When you don't run into trouble, you run into good things. And when you get sick, that kind of covers a lot of the bases, doesn't it? Um, three times when prayer is appropriate. In times of external suffering, internal cheerfulness, and physical illness. Here's a picture of a person too ill to go to the elders for prayer. Sends for friends or relatives to the elders. Again, this person's pretty sick. That's why the elders need to come to this person's place. Probably ordinarily the person would go to them, but they have to come to him because the person's very sick, the one James is hypothetically speaking about. The elders, that's an office that originated in Jewish synagogues and the church adopted into its structure where the way churches are organized in that time and by different names today is that there is a governing body over the church that makes sure the church stays on target. Within the synagogue, these, the governing body was called elders. And that's what the church called them, especially those churches with Jewish origins. They were called other things, presbyters. And, it's, and the name is not as critical as the function. In fact, Paul calls, calls them by a bunch of different names and doesn't really speak about a clear organizing body, only that one needs to exist. In seminary, we learned about official and unofficial church structures. And we were told that there's some official church structures where you've got this board and that board and what we were told, but there are unofficial church structures. And that usually has to do with powerful families in the church. And so you could get a diagram, an organizational structure, but practically the way it works is in many churches there are very powerful families that have a way of, and that's, we haven't been around, well, we've been around long enough for that to happen, but I don't believe that's the way. Anyways, anyway. Um, the three parts of the healing rite, there's prayer, there's anointing, and calling on the name of Jesus. The prayer, rather than the oil, is the primary act. The prayer is the thing here. And the one who prays calls on the name of the Lord. And what that is, it's recognizing that this person, as a representative of God, it's really God that's doing the work and in calling on the name of the Lord is distancing from any ascription of the power to themselves in the name of Jesus the, the healing is done so that all will understand that it's not the power of the one praying, but it's the power of the one to whom prayer is being offered. That's where the power comes from. And oil is was a medicine in those days. So some will indicate that anointing with oil is both a 
sacrament, which is a visible means that represents an invisible influence. It might be that, or olive oil was used to heal. And I don't know, but at any rate, whether it's seeing that, you know, give them medicine and pray for them. What the context indicates here, it's, it's more of oil as a visible sign of an invisible influence. So anoint them with oil, and that is an, a sign of God's presence. Um, and it says, do this, and the, the sick person will be made well. I've been an elder in different churches in uh, the United States and in China and have been involved in being called to places where people were very sick and we prayed over them, anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord. And um, haven't seen dramatic healings. I'm not sure what to do with that, but we all have that experience, don't we? might not have anointed with oil in the name of the Lord, but we've all prayed for things. And I could tell you about some people that they got better afterwards, but it's not exactly clear whether it was the prayer or what. You know what I mean? It's not we didn't pray for someone and then automatically they sprung up and were well. That would be a clear indication. And apparently that happened, but it's somewhat, not embarrassing, but it does raise questions for us, doesn't it? How does this work? Did we have enough faith to make it work? Did we not have enough faith? Faith makes the sick person well. Maybe we needed to think a little bit more about it. And that's the problem with prayer. It's hard to figure out how to make it work. I don't need to tell you that, though, do I? You have your own questions, as do we all. I prayed about this thing, and it was done. I prayed about that thing, and it wasn't. And I think all of us share that experience. You don't need to be an elder. You don't need to have anointed somebody with oil in the name of the Lord to understand that prayer can be puzzling. We're supposed to pray. It says prayer is powerful. But I think what our track record in making it powerful, seeing its power, is probably pretty checkered. A number of us have seen dramatic answers to prayer, but there has been as many times that we haven't. And... um, Somerset Maugham wrote a book of Human Bondage, 1946. It was an autobiographical novel. He himself had a club foot. I believe that he lost parents early in life, and the the figure, the character in the story, Philip, has a club foot and lost parents and went through a religious phase. I'm going to just give a sense for, I'm going to set up this paragraph where he has an experience where he learns about prayer and talks about a wave of religiosity passing through the school when he was in boarding school, says, and I quote, bad language was no longer heard, the little nastiness of small boys was looked upon with hostility, the bigger boys, like the lords, temper of the Middle Ages, used the strength of their arms to persuade those weaker than themselves to virtuous courses. So he's in a place where there's a religious upswing, And the big kids are pushing the little kids to get spiritual. And so he was part of that. But for him, it was heartfelt. He talked about um, his mind avid for new things. He became very devout. He joined a Bible league. And so he sent away and gave a little bit of money. And they sent him this, this thing where you read a part of the Bible every day. 
And so they gave you a calendar and gave you a sheet to to fill in what you read from the Bible. Um, They alternated between books of the Old Testament and books of the New. And one time, Philip came along, came across this scripture. If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all this, whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. That was kind of interesting. I didn't think much about it. So three days later, he goes to church. They have a text for the morning. And guess what text it is? The exact same text. Now, the boys, they had to sit in this peanut gallery behind the one giving the message. So he didn't hear all of the message, but he heard the verse. And during the course of the sermon, he thought about it. And he started to think about his club foot and wondering if he could believe he could be healed. Hmm. He got the information he wanted, so he started to do business with God. I read, his little room was icy, and he shivered when he put on his nightshirt. But he always felt that his prayers were more pleasing to God when he said them under the conditions of discomfort. The coldness of his hands and feet were an offering to the Almighty. And tonight he sank on his knees, buried his face in his hands, and prayed to God with all his might that he would make his club foot whole. It was a very small thing beside the moving of mountains. He knew that God could do it if he wished. And his own faith was complete. Next morning, finishing his prayer with the same request, he fixed a date for the miracle. Again, this is autobiographical. O God, in thy loving mercy and goodness, if it be thy will, please make my foot all right on the night before I go to school. And it was the Christmas holidays. He was glad to get his petition into a formula, and he repeated it later in the dining room during the short pause which the vicar always made after prayers before he rose from his knees. He said it again in the evening and again shivering in his nightshirt before he got into bed. And he believed. For once he looked forward with eagerness to the end of the holidays. He laughed to himself. As he thought of his uncle's astonishment when he ran down the stairs three at a time. And after breakfast, he and Aunt Louisa would have to hurry out and and buy a new pair of boots. He would be able to play football. His heart leaped as he saw himself running, running faster than any of the other boys. At the end of Easter term, there were the sports, and he would be able to go in for the races. He rather fancied himself over the hurdles. It would be splendid to be like everyone else, not to be stared at curiously by new boys who did not know about his deformity, not at the baths in summer, to need incredible precautions when he was undressing before he could hide his foot in the water. He prayed with all the power of his soul. No doubts assailed him. He was confident in the word of God. And the night before he was to go back to school, he went up to bed tremulous with excitement. There was snow on the ground. And Aunt Louisa had allowed herself the unaccustomed luxury of a fire in her bedroom. But in Philip's little room, it was so cold that his fingers were numb and he had great difficulty in undoing his collar. His teeth chattered. 
the idea came to him that he must do something more than usual to attract the attention of God. And he turned back the rug which was in front of his bed so that he could kneel on the bare boards. And then it struck him that his nightshirt was a softness that might displease his maker, so he took it off and set his prayers naked. When he got into bed, he was so cold that for some time he could not sleep. But when he did, it was so soundly that Marianne had to shake him when she brought him his hot water next morning. She talked to him while she drew the curtains, but he did not answer. He had remembered at once that this was the morning for the miracle. And his heart was filled with joy and gratitude. His first instinct was to put down his hand and feel the foot, which was whole now. But to do this seemed to doubt the goodness of God. He knew that his foot was well. But at last he made up his mind, and with the toes of his right foot, he just touched his left. Then he passed his hand over it. He limped downstairs just as Marianne was going into the dining room for prayers. And then he sat down to breakfast. The text which spoke of the moving of mountains was just one of those that said one thing and meant another. Understanding prayer how do we make sense of this? A couple things. Put the text in context. Whenever understanding something out of the Bible, there's two principles for interpretation. How do we know what it says? And there's two things. Put the text in context and let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's look at both of these and apply them to prayer, to understanding prayer. Put it in context. I heard it said, text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. This is what that means. If you take a text of Scripture but don't put it in its context, ordinarily what is happening is somebody's trying to prove a point and they're yanking that text out to do it. So put the text in its context. Understand what's happening around the text. Now God, if he wanted to, could have sent his message by divine beings and had these divine beings issuing timeless edicts from the heavens. He did not do that. When God sent his message, he sent it through human beings who were absorbed in their time. So we have to consider the historical realities that existed when this person said this. In fact, the proper interpretation of a scripture is that which the original readers would have understood. And that's what we think about when we think of the Bible. What would the original readers have thought? What was the word that they would have used? What was happening among them at this time? That's the proper interpretation of Scripture. We have a tendency to take a verse and yank it and, and make it say this, but that's not really the way to go. Now, Scripture applies, but we have to do a couple things with the Bible. We observe, interpret, and apply. Observe, interpret, apply. Observe, we ask and answer this question. What does it say? What does it say? And if you're looking for a way to study the Bible, come to it and don't go to what does it mean. That's interpretation. And how does it apply to me? That's application. Observation is what does it say? And start with the simple things. What we do, we invariably move into 
interpretation, which answers the question, what does it mean? And we invariably go on to application, which answers the question, what does it mean to me? But we don't labor over what does it say. When I do Bible study, I love having a pen on a piece of paper. And what I'll do, I will write. Now, not everybody likes to do that. Some of you are very good at reading and absorbing things as you read. Take your time with it. Some of us, our brains are kind of, you have to reel them in. And so what I find is when I am writing Scripture, and that's what I will do. I will just put the text, and I will write the text out. And what I find is that when I'm writing a passage, there's something that happens as I focus through my pen on a piece of paper. I wouldn't have seen that just writing it out. And then sometimes I'll ask questions and I'll, I'll put, what, does, what is this saying? And that's first. Remember what that is? That's observation. Observe. Then, when you've observed, you can go to interpretation. What does this mean? Then application. What does it mean to me? Observation, interpretation, application. Those three questions. First question. What does it say? Second question. What does it mean? Third question, what does it mean? What's observation? What does it say? What's interpretation? What's application? Okay. And so, this is important when it comes to understanding any passage of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so, we've got to consider the context in which some of these things come as we read this section from James. The cultural context. Let's think about the people to whom he's writing. And in James 2, verses 5 through 7, it's written under uh, point 2, understanding prayer principle 1. James says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? These are Jewish Christians who fit neither in the Greco-Roman nor in the Jewish culture because of their beliefs. They are Jews, so they don't fit in a Gentile culture. They are Jewish Christians, so they don't fit in a Jewish culture. They are people without a home. They are distanced in that sense. Uh, they are oppressed. They're working menial jobs. The reason why he's talked about courts is because they don't get justice in the courts. They're not considered important. They're discriminated against. They don't have fun lives. They don't have good jobs. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a real bright future to look forward to. We tend to think that prayer is about how. How do we make it work? How do we make it work? Why do you say it in such a way? Maybe you have to say it a certain way. God, I pray in Jesus' name. Maybe, maybe that's, or maybe you have to be soft in Jesus' name. Or there's got to be something to make it work, like something you're trying to figure out. And we think the critical question with prayer is how. If only we could make it work. It, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question is who? Who is it? Who is it that God moves towards? The one who has faith, sure. Isn't it true in the Bible that it is the poor and the oppressed who 
who garner divine intention. See, we tend to think that no matter where we are, God answers prayer. But you know the deal with these people who are being told that the prayers would make them well? Let me tell you what they're not going to do once they're healed. They're not going to spend the afternoon on the golf course. They're not going to play 9 or 18 holes. Now, there's nothing wrong with golf. What I'm saying is these people do not have a nice life. And when they're healed, they're not going to go to the country club, and they're not going to go out to dinner. They're going to go back in and work menial jobs. It's not a wonderful life. We tend to forget that and say it's just a matter of how when anybody can make it work. I'm not sure that's true. When we look at the cultural context, these people... It's, it's the virtual equivalent of being in the wilderness. Remember the Israelites roaming a while in the wilderness? And for 40 years, what miracle did they experience? 40 years without fail. They didn't always get water. That wasn't the miracle. You know what the miracle was? That cotton-picking shoe is still okay. I mean, this thing never wears out. 20, 30, you figure this thing would have worn out by now. But I've got this cotton-picking shoe that always allows me to set out again across the sandy recesses. It's the kind of miracle that's not a, hey, wonderful. (laughs) The miracles they receive are going to allow them to continue in a life that is not all that fun. Sometimes we forget to ask the who question. Who is it? Whose prayers are being answered? And it is true that God answers the prayers of the oppressed. I imagine there's, you know, it's difficult though. There are Kurdish Christians whose prayers are being answered. Not all of them. It seems in desperate places that prayers are answered. And, and I, our prayers are, yes. But this isn't a desperate place, is it? This isn't a desperate place. We live in one of the most powerful nations that's ever walked the earth. Again, does that mean God doesn't love us? No, he loves us. Does it impact our ability to receive answers to prayer? I think so. I think so in terms of miracles. Um, Literary context. What he has said to them in chapter 4, again, So we have this verse in chapter 5, but he's talked about prayer before. And so we have to look at what he said before. What did he say about prayer? He already talked about it. He said, you want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. They've been told that prayers rooted in the pursuit of pleasure will not be answered. And again, so if this prayer will just allow them to have a happier day, what James is saying, don't even bother. Again, what are we supposed to do with this? I'm not going to stand up here with a bony finger and say, so stop praying pleasurable prayers. You know, but there's... What we're seeing here, there's context that would lead us not to take a verse and to automatically slap it into a thing and, yes, it's going to happen. We have to look at what it says here. Um, The healing James 
experiences, again, is in, it, it's similar to those shoes never wearing out. There's a literary context, and then there's a historical context. This is a very unique juncture in salvation history when James writes this letter. God has been associated with the temple up until this point, but the church was birthed. But now both are still open for business. Between the years when Jesus came, maybe 30 and 70 A.D., there were two religious places open for business. There was the the temple and there was the church, both of whom worshipped the same God, ostensibly. And there was some confusion. It was an unrepeatable juncture in salvation history where God was moving out of one place, moving into another, but that didn't happen overnight. Um, And it's an unrepeatable moment. Look what C.S. Lewis says. I included a sheet with a couple quotes from him. Very interesting. He says, you are probably quite right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. If your own life does not happen to be near one of those ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter, but why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely is it that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide? That we should see a miracle is even less likely. Nor, if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. This is a very interesting thing. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. When you look in the place where there are the most miracles in the Bible, what you'll see at the same time, he points to it, miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch around, bunch about the same areas of history, areas that we have naturally no wish to frequent. And all we're doing is saying, what are you saying, Mike? Are you saying that God... No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is let's understand the context to which this verse was said. Let's understand the cultural context and the historical context and the literary context. And then we end up asking those, those questions. What does this mean? What does it mean for me? And we look at it. We ask questions about it. But it's not simple, is it? Not simple. Um, The next thing, understanding prayer, is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. It says at the end of that passage, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. A couple things, when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, this verse might seem to indicate that if you are sick, you have sinned. So, if you're sick, I wonder what you did. You know, because if, if, and if, and it doesn't say that the, that the person who's sick sinned, but if the person did, they will be healed physically and their sin will be forgiven. And so then we have to look, is that true? Are we, if we're sick, does that mean we've done something wrong? If we're not sick, does that mean we haven't done something wrong? What does the Bible say? You understand it creates questions. So what do you do? 
let Scripture interpret Scripture. Is there a place in the Bible that's clearer about this question? And there is. Look what it says in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, again, they didn't, it wasn't a matter of is this so, they assumed it was so, and this was their question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It wasn't a matter of if, it was who. I mean, this guy, Jesus, was born blind. So whose sin was it? Was it his parents? Or was it this kid? Did he sin in the womb? Or, and Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus didn't tie sickness to sin. That's good news for some of you who deal with chronic, acute sickness, things that will not go away. You say, what have I done wrong? What sin have I committed? Jesus would indicate. And that question might be raised by a text. But we are letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And then we come away saying, well, I'm not sure what it means at this juncture of salvation history when it's going from Judaism to Christianity. But one thing I do know is that Jesus said that sin and sickness are not inextricably linked together. One might lead to another, but not necessarily. Jesus certainly indicates that. And again, another thing is, uh, when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, miracles are not trustworthy indicators of divine involvement. Which, what I'm saying, if there's a miracle, you automatically assume, oh, that's a God thing. Oh, man. You ever watch those television shows? And so apparently the miracle is when you do this and people get knocked over. Now, again, I'm not, I've talked to people and they have said something real happened and I've talked to people who said, um, but that, is that a proof of God's involvement when a miracle happens? Look at Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen to what it says. Many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I want you to hear what these guys are saying. These guys are not talking about the name of some somebody that, whose name that they shouldn't be using. These people, in Jesus' name, this is what I say to you. In Jesus' name be healed. In Jesus' name come out of him. They're doing it in Jesus' name. And, and so with it, what are they expecting to hear? Oh, by God, they, they're expecting the, the applause of heaven. And, and so they come. And what Jesus indicates is, he says, well, didn't I do this, this, and this? And silence. There's no applause wait a minute, this is a miracle in Jesus' name. And, and it doesn't say something didn't happen. Something did happen. There was something that happened. It seemed like a demon came out. It seemed like a sickness was healed. It seemed like something happened, and it surely has to be God. And listen to what Jesus says. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So all we're saying is that a miracle is not proof of divine involvement. Would you agree with me? Isn't that what it says? It might be, but not necessarily. Um, interesting, I, what it says in Acts 
19. Let me just read this. I, it's not included. It, gives, it talks about Paul when he went on his initial forays into unreached peoples where a lot of miracles tend to happen. I heard about a lot of miracles in China when earlier in the 20th century when the gospel was penetrating China. A lot of miracles. When reaching unreached peoples, miracles tend to congregate. Of course, martyrdom tends to congregate about those times as well. Heard about a lot of deaths as well. And those seem to go together. Anyways, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, it says in Acts 19, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left him. So here's the deal. There's somebody with a handkerchief. Paul can't make it to the place. All you have to do, take the handkerchief, just touch him with it, then you are far away. I can take this handkerchief, being very careful, and I can hit you with it, boom, heal. And it talks about who accompanied Paul. Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus. You'll be tested on this, by the way, so make sure you get these names. Uh, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and but here's a name I want you to remember. Trophimus. Trophimus from the province of Asia. You got the, all those guys. I want you to do. You don't have to remember those guys. One guy's name I want you to remember who was with Paul when he's doing the thing with the handkerchiefs and probably Trophimus was one of the guys who took a handkerchief and, and touched somebody. So what was it? Trophimus. Okay, now I'm going to read something from Second <laughs> Timothy chapter 4, Paul's last letter. Listen to this. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Paul writing and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. And ready? What was this guy's name? And I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Wait a minute. Uh, Paul, hold on just a second. Uh, he probably carried the handkerchiefs. Now, why wasn't Trophimus healed? Why did you leave him sick in Miletus? When he was part of your team, he probably carried handkerchiefs. And everybody was being healed without breaking a sweat. Why do you leave Trophimus sick in Miletus? Why? Can we agree that raises a question? Do you think Trophimus lacked faith? We have no indication that he did. He was still traveling with Paul, still a worker, a missionary. Can we assume? Well, listen to what, listen to what um, C.S. Lewis says in the last passage that we'll look at from the efficacy of prayer. Very powerful statement. That's why I included that sheet. It would be even worse to think of those who get what they pray for as a sort of court Favorites, people who have influence with the throne. The refused prayer of Christ in Gethsemane is answer enough to that. And I dare not leave out the hard saying which I once heard from an experienced Christian. Listen to this, very interesting. I have seen many striking answers to prayer and more than one that I thought miraculous. But they usually come at the beginning before conversion or soon after it. As the Christian life proceeds, they tend to be rarer. 
the refusals too are not only more frequent, they become more unmistakable, more emphatic. Does God then forsake just those who serve him best? Worship team, come on up. I'll continue to read. Well, he who served him best of all said near his tortured death, why have you forsaken me? When God becomes man, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. There is a mystery here, which even if I have the power, I might not have the courage to explore. He finishes, meanwhile, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. So a couple of things. His prayer, when do we talk to God? At all times. When we are distressed, when we're happy, when we're sick. But we've also seen things that would cause us to pause, at least not to heap guilt on ourselves if those prayers aren't answered. We looked at, let, let the text be in its context and let Scripture interpret Scripture so we pray. But if we get a yes or if we get a no, it's not because we are closer or not as close to God. Prayer is a very puzzling thing. And we'll understand why God does what he does eternally. But what we can say, answered prayer or not, we talk to God and we bring with us the sense that he will never leave us or never forsake us. If he doesn't give us the request, he gives us the ability to continue to endure it. Father, you desire for us to talk to you. You desire for us to be real, to be honest about the things that we see and feel. You desire for us to, to be still, to acknowledge whose presence we're coming into. We're not an errand boy. You're the God of the universe. You say you will fulfill your purposes. You tell us that you will never leave us and forsake us. Being real and being still, you invite us to breathe freely, to exhale our concerns to you, and to inhale your commitments when difficulty, when good things, when illness. And in so doing, you tell us that you will be with us. You won't always give us the things that we want, but you will give us what we need to wait perseveringly and respond gently. But then at some point, on the far side, when your kingdom is present when this world no longer is, then we'll experience the undiluted joy of your presence. Until then, it's bittersweet. There are answers, but not as many as we'd like. Continue to teach us to pray, to be persevering, and to understand prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.